Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Kreppi and he is Aaron Fentress. And uh, after a, a very lengthy edition of the podcast last week during the bye week, <laughs> we will keep this one tighter. And just to uh, really sure get into will. the updates personnel-wise uh, and etc. and really get into this week's game between the Ducks and Cal uh, on Friday night, 730 uh, at Otson Stadium, of course, that you can watch uh, from home on ESPN as well. Uh, but we get into and start with, like we say, really the personnel updates uh, and the latest that there is. So starting from a coaching standpoint, I know there's obviously much uh, concern and question, naturally, as there should be, regarding, first and foremost, the offensive coordinator uh, and Joe Moorhead, who was not uh, able to coach during the Stanford game, uh, had surgery in the Bay Area shortly thereafter uh, for what is still just an, uh, an unspecified ailment. Uh, but the News that we've heard so far this week, and we'll hear again uh, later this afternoon, recording this uh, Tuesday morning, we'll hear from Mario Cristobal after practice here in a few hours, is that the hope uh, is that Joe Moorhead will be back this week for the Ducks, which would obviously be uh, great news. Uh, well, first and foremost, let's hope above all that Joe Moorhead is just doing well and recovering uh, from the situation. That, uh, like I say, I don't have uh, any additional specifics at the moment beyond that he had surgery in the Bay Area and was recovering and obviously is back in Eugene and et cetera. Uh, but beyond that, in terms of, well, what happened? What happened? Well, I haven't heard that yet. Uh, and, and to be totally upfront, I have not heard that yet either. <laughs> yeah. Beyond what's just been said. Uh, and I think that's something that once we hear from Joe Moorhead again, hope, hopefully uh, in the not too distant future, that he may be willing to uh, share the specifics of. Uh, this situation and obviously you hope that it wasn't anything terribly serious in the first place uh, but regardless uh, first and foremost that his health improves and, and that he fully recovers from the situation whatever it is and secondly that yes from a football standpoint that he's able to return as soon as possible if that's Friday night well then that certainly is very advantageous to the Ducks do you think Aaron in terms of uh, speaking strictly to the football aspect of things yeah did you think that there was a truly significant difference from what Oregon did offensively beyond we know about execution we, we can go through that exhaustively we're talking about right. stylistically schematically do you really think there was a difference I mean for instance I mean it was it, at least the onset of the game it things were so on track and uh, not noticeably different uh, at least to some observers uh, in the broadcast booth who didn't know that Joe Moorhead wasn't at the stadium until they were told that uh they thought that he was calling the game. So clearly it wasn't like they ran the triple option or something. Um, but do you, do you, did you think that there was actually, upon looking back at the game and, and reviewing it, did you think there was actually a discernible 
or significant difference uh, when Jim Mastro, running backs coach, was calling the plays. I I didn't notice. I mean, I didn't feel like oh, this is a vast you know difference in approach or anything like that. Uh, you know, I we all know that the game plans prepared ahead of time. Yeah. Most of your plays are set up ahead of time for situations, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course the offensive coordinator, the genius in it can be the deviation from this and that or seeing something and making an adjustment. So maybe there are some adjustments that weren't made that he would have made uh, different play calls, wrinkles that he might've, uh, you know, addressed or attacked that maybe Mastro wasn't seeing. I don't know how much ma- experience Mastro has calling plays. What's his background in that area? Do you know? uh, he said some. He's had some previously at Nevada. And Has he been other, a coordinator? Be, so he's been a coordinator or just called plays? Uh, well, one and the same, really. I mean, if you're calling the plays, well, typically you're yeah, usually the coordinator. You're coordinator yeah. <laughs> so uh, either that, either that, or you're the play calling head coach. Um, but but yeah, no, I, he's had some. He's had some. Obviously, I mean, I, I I think that not just in general that goes almost without saying. But given that they also have a, a Brian McClendon who's called plays uh, right. on this on the staff, and they they talk about how they do collaborate, so it's not like. Yes, there is a play caller, and sooner or later, in the course of forty seconds, someone has to have the final say. But you know, if, if some there, there is conversation going on, even when Joe Moorhead's there, there's conversation going on on the headsets yeah. um, in terms of what's being seen across the board. Uh, right. And if somebody else sees something and is like, "I think this might," you know, and they interject. Now, now they're not having full conversations eighty-five times yeah. a game, but you know, point is, yes, Master does have some. But clearly, if, and, if you have someone whose title is offensive coordinator and they're not there. There's no yes. doubt that that's going to have an impact. I don't think that's why they lost. No. I don't think you, anyone's going to look back and go, they no. lost because Moorhead wasn't there. Now, if they, now if Moorhead missed three weeks and for three straight weeks their offense was you know declining in production, then I think you can say, okay, well this is a, a huge issue. Uh, but you know a one off situation, I didn't feel like it was that big a deal. Only they know for sure. No, I I only the only two th- areas, well, only a couple of areas that I saw really a quote unquote discernible difference. I did notice that they ran less of the unbalanced formation against Stanford than they did previously. Where in some games, I mean, they ran it like three and four straight plays in some instances. I no, I with that said, early when they did run it once or twice, Stanford picked up on it and adjusted, like we had talked about weeks ago about you know why do you bother covering the uncovered you know the the covered up receiver? Stanford adjusted, so I think they may have actually taken the foot off the gas on that. Uh, uh, formation and at one point I think they actually audibled out of it because they were like oh Stanford adjusted well then they adjusted the receivers and staggered them so that there wasn't a covered receiver uh, so I think that was part of it it may have been because Stanford just picked up on it so like oh well we're not going to fool these guys so don't worry about it um, that might have been one the other was bec- I, I'm virtually positive Jim was upstairs and normally he's on the sideline uh, along with you know, Moorhead and etc but he was calling the game from the box. That changed the running back uh, uh, rotation on the sideline in terms of in-game. Did that have any impact in terms of who was playing at the time? Whatever, truly? No, not really, because Verdell was going to get the carries he was getting. It had nothing to do with why you know, he didn't get hurt because he was overused or something. He got hurt because of a fluke situation on a tackle. Um, Travis Dye got the carries that he got, uh, and Carwell got in the game. So obviously there was an in-game difference, but not truly discernible. Uh, and I think just the fact that there wasn't somebody on the sideline, like a Joe Moorhead, extra in particular, pair of the, the, the dynamic, yeah, an extra pair of eyes, yeah, but also the dynamic, eyes, yeah. the dynamic with the quarterback. Um, and yeah. that's just different. 
You know, so that would be a discernible difference. So that again, to your point, is it why they lost? No. Is it why you know the the is it why Anthony Brown made a couple of bad decisions on reads on on read options uh, or a couple of bad throws? <laughs> no. So right. you know, ultimately, was it a factor? Yes. Was it a factor that led to winning and losing? I, I would still I'd agree with you. I don't think it had any factor winning or losing the game against Stanford. But obviously, again, the faster that Joe Moorhead comes back the better for, for many, many reasons. Uh, from a right. game preparation standpoint, obviously he's a, a terrific play caller. And again, just the, the more eyes that you have on the field, uh, the general normal discourse on the headsets as a staff, I mean, things were functioning as they were. And especially where this is an offense that is going to have to adjust. I don't know if it's, it's not going to revolutionize. It's not going to turn on its head. But it has to adjust. Uh, and Jim Mastro is going to play a big part in this in terms of the running back situation. I know we want to get to that as well of just this mm-hmm. is going to be one of the not just the biggest things this week against a Cal team who's if it has a strength, it is its run defense. But, uh, you know, the second half of the season, the whole way through the running back rotation that, again, Jim Mastro handled, it has handled and will continue to handle uh, when, when he's not calling plays is the running back rotation in games. And how you try to disperse the carries that C.J. Verdell was having across the rest of the running back core where, yeah, they have depth, they have players, they have bodies. But three of them are freshmen who have not played a ton of significant time just yet. They're no fault of their own, just they haven't. And the other, of course, being Travis Dye, who we know is a prolific player and has been for several years, but who has never been leaned on like Verdell was leaned on. And not just this season, but in the past. I mean, right now, Travis Dye is having a career high in touches, uh, as I wrote about yesterday in the story you could check out. But he's got a career high in touches per game and is coming off his career high, well, season high, but highest since uh, uh, the Oregon State game in 2018, his freshman year. They haven't had to turn to him for, you know, 20 touches in back-to-back games. They might have to do that the next eight weeks. That's, you know, to most people, they may be like, oh, so what? Uh, 20 carries for running back. (laughs) <laughs> they haven't had to do it. He hasn't had yeah. to do it. That's all. So do you think that that will be a, uh, a particularly big factor? Uh, and how do you think you know, they'll handle it, things in the running back court? It's fascinating because, you know, Kenyon Barner, LaMichael James, and Die are all pretty much the same size. Built a little differently, but pretty much the same size. Those two handled, you know, massive carry loads. But I've always viewed Die as this not that being that type of runner. He He's not... Like LaMichael, you could pound him in there and he'd be fine. Barner, you could do that with him. I just don't feel like Die is built like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like he did, and maybe it's because we haven't seen it, but I just don't feel like he's a guy you want to run the same way you would run Verdell over and over and over again for multiple, multiple games. He's at some point, I feel like he's going to break down. Like I just, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm underestimating him because we just haven't seen it and he can pull that off. But regardless, you have to have other dudes. Behind him, because you can't, you, if you're going to run him 23 times, there has to be breaks in there, right? Because of his, his stature. And that's what LaMichael would get. LaMichael might rush for 25 carries back in the day, but he'd get spots where he'd be out and Kenyon would go in. And so LaMichael could sort of rest, relax, almost like uh, in a boxing match when you get that one minute break in between the, th- the three minute rounds. And so Oregon's going to need some depth behind Die to at least give him that. And then we'll see if he can hold up being the lead back. Yeah, I think there's 
there's kind of multiple factors by way of yeah when you especially when you compare historically i think it comes down to a little bit of of distribution uh and, and support around so yeah you could you could cite any number of guys from the past uh whether it be at oregon or elsewhere but yeah but who else were they with uh and and who kind of took and shouldered the load along with them die is clearly going to have to be the lead the lead guy here uh and that's again that not going any of the freshmen one or multiple may get and may have really prolific games there's a chance these final seven games of the regular season, if they make it to the title game, the final eight games, there is absolutely not just a chance, there might even be the high likelihood that one or multiple freshman running backs lead Oregon in rushing in any given game because yep. people make key on Travis Dye and Seven McGee, given his speed, may break one long run for 60 plus yards and he may have, you know, a buck 10 in a game that Travis has 85 uh, or, you know, Cardwell or. Uh, Benson may have a whole bunch of work between the tackles and they break one or something like that and they end up with, you know, same thing, like a 92-yard game and Travis is in the 80s kind of deal. But from a carry, from a touch per game average, I think that's a factor. I think touch per quarter on a jet, like throughout the course of a game, so are you, are you being preserved and that so that if they need to lean on him heavily in the fourth that they really lean on him, which they were doing a little bit with CJ earlier in the season, uh, clearly, right. and they were trying to avoid a lot of wear and tear on him. Or do they keep it consistent? Uh, I think also there probably comes a point, and this is all like proprietary and probably internal stuff that, you know, kind of like in baseball where you get to the, you know, the third time through or after a certain pitch count or something like that, that you start to see a regression Obviously, staffs only look at this stuff in terms of, and chart this stuff internally and really know it. But I think there will probably be a pretty better, a much better understanding from them of is there a regression or an increased probability of fumbles or fatigue or whatever the case is after a certain point for any player. This goes again. You could talk about is there an increased probability of a quarterback throwing an interception later in a game or something? You know, if certain routes or whatever the case is. Um, Football staffs have that kind of information. There's not a great statistical source for us to pull from to find some of these right. things necessarily. Um, there is a college football reference, just like there's a baseball reference, but it doesn't delve into the depths like we're talking about here. So I think that there's there's certain aspects like that that could come in, certainly for Travis. But yeah, like I wrote about, I mean, he. I realize it's high school and it's you know four or five years ago, so it's not analogous. You can't say it remotely that playing against Pac-12 competition for the next two months is going to be analogous to what he was facing in high school. It's just not. Right. But he averaged, you know, at one point late in his high school career, he was touching the ball. He had over 30 carries a game for four straight games. And he had, in back-to-back games at the end of his high school career, 300-plus yards rushing and six touchdowns in back-to-back games. Mm-hmm. You say, well, okay, yeah, he was doing it there. Now, again, high school competition. If you, <laughs> Plus, if, if, you wanna, if he was gaining yeah. 300 yards and scoring six touchdowns, he wasn't getting hit very often. Right, <laughs> right. for one. For one. <laughs> right. uh, two, the, 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 the truly, for whatever, it's one of those that if you want to take any positive from this, okay, well, take that with a grain of salt. Here's another one to take with a grain of salt. In his final high school game, nine carries in, he suffered an ankle injury after all of that. Mm-hmm. So, again, what does that have any bearing on Friday's game against Cal or anything? It doesn't. I just reference it by way of you haven't seen him get called upon for that before. To Aaron's point, maybe we just ha- we haven't seen it for any number of reasons or there's questions of, all right, look, there may be some things where 
if we were back in 2018, I would have said, hey, doing that between the tackles 20 times, I'm not sure if Travis is built for that. I think he's gained some size and bulk to a system there. He's certainly improved his pass blocking compared to a couple of years ago in a big, big way. But CJ was averaging 17.2 touches per game. Travis is at 13.6, and that's a career high. Even if you just, just uptick him four touches per game only, you know, that's like a third of his you know, current touches. And we're, and we're factoring in receptions along the way. You know, he's, he's basically taking the, the kickoff responsibilities off of his plate because of this. All right, well, even if you just do that, there are still 13 other carries that have to be distributed across the three freshmen, and you don't just say, oh, well, each one gets four. No, someone's probably right. getting like seven or eight, another one's getting, you know, four or five, and then that might be it for the week, or it might be kind of evenly distributed. It'll change by the week. So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. But I, I, in terms of who exactly is getting all of it and the ripple effects, but I think it will probably start initially with trying to get Travis at least to where CJ was from a touch standpoint. And in fairness, again, as much as they leaned on CJ, CJ didn't get to the points because of minor injuries always in 2018 and 2019 along the way that knocked him out of games. He didn't have a lot of instances of consecutive 20-touch games because he got knocked out of games, unfortunately, because of how hard he played and just would run with such reckless abandon. So if they can just get Travis to the 17-18 touch-per-game average, which is a jump, Sounds easy for everybody. Oh, it's one touch per quarter. Again, when three hundred multiple three hundred pound men are slamming into you while you're doing it, uh, it's not a lot of fun. Um, so that's that's why you say it's it's going to be complicated. It's not as simple as oh, just next man up, next man up. If it was that easy, you know, everybody would replace star running backs like it was no big deal. It's going to have an impact. Do they have depth? Yeah, they do. They do. And you're going to see those freshman running backs. I, I promise you that. You're going to see all of them uh, at different points. I don't know if you're going to see all of them on a Friday night, but you are going to see all of them at different points. What's interesting, too, is that is that Benson and Cardwell are big dudes. Yeah. Like, so they're going to offer an alternative to Dye's style. And I can't imagine between Benson, Cardwell, and McGee that one of them isn't going to emerge at some point where you're like, oh, okay, they're fine. <laughs> Like that guy's good, and that yeah. guy's the future. And there, you know, I would—I mean, I would expect unless they completely botched the recruiting at that area. But I can't imagine that's the case. And running back is a situation where, if you have skills as a back, you should be able to pop in there and be productive if the offensive line is doing its job. For me, it always comes back to there first. If the offensive line's blocking things correctly, any competent back should be able to be productive. Are they going to be special? Maybe not, but they should at least be competent enough to pick up the yards that are available and i can't imagine that these three guys aren't going to be able to do that so they should be okay mathematically yeah oh they've they've got from a talent standpoint the the talent is there i don't think that's really up for for debate um the uh the greater issue is um just game experience i think is is the biggest part and to be honest i think the truly the biggest aspect because like to your point aaron if the hole is there, you don't even have to say, like, well, do they have the vision of a more experienced player? Well, you, only, you, you can't hit the fast-forward button on that. You just can't. Um, there's certain game instincts and things that are either just natural or just have to be acquired over time. The biggest thing at this level from freshman running backs is pass blocking. It's the biggest thing. Yeah. 
And you're talking, all right, so put it into Friday night. What does it mean? What it means is when they're guarding and pass downs, when it's third and five plus, I, and I'm not knocking any of the three freshmen. I'm not even single out any of them. When it's third and five plus and Cameron Good is coming with his ears pins back and he's one of the best edge players in this league, uh, yeah, you don't throw a freshman to the wolves on that situation. You just have to, well, yeah. I mean, you have to simplify the the protection. Like it has, it can't. If he's not capable of discerning everything you need to read, you just have to make it simple. Go left, right? All Theoretically, you, do is you go left and you help, or you if a blitz coming, you got the guy on the left. Theoretically, if there's no one there. You 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 chip, or maybe he might have you know a check down. Or whatever, Sounds nice. You don't even and do then, that. You make it simple, simple, right. simple, simple. But here, right for him. Here's the other side. If I'm Cal's defense. If I'm Justin Wilcox and I'm the defensive line coach in particular, and you know that, and you're telling your guys, <clears throat> if two six isn't in the backfield and we're going, we're going for it, we're shooting the moon, stunt, stem, any number of different things of to course. confuse the so, heck out of them. Because if right, we can but- free up an, a free rusher through the B gap or through the A gap that he doesn't see on the opposite side, I would stun a guy from all the way from the wide, from when we're talking Cameron Good, I'd go wide nine to opposite A, just to just <laughs> so that, to so completely that, knock this running back off his you know off his kilter if it, if it's not die because you I why know. wouldn't you why wouldn't you no, oh no, well you, you may not get there it's not about not getting there for him it's about trying to confuse him to free up someone else right no I understand that and the counter to that in the passing game is that when that green running back is back there and you've simplified things for him and you think Cal's going to be creative in that way you're running quick stuff you hope one step drop yeah. from the shotgun which yeah. similar to what stanford did to oregon on that final drive when oregon was trying to bring pressure and they were just running quick passes so it can't be well i'm trying to throw an 18 yard dig with a green running back on third and 10 it has to be the ball's gone otherwise you're setting your quarterback up for disaster no doubt about that and that's that's where when you look in the situational splits and those are some things you can find if you look at cfb stats um in particular that's that's the most widely used uh, statistic spot for college football you can look at some situational splits of these running backs and you see where cj where those touches came where those carries came now in pass protection they don't they, they it's it's not going to show you that yet you just have to kind of know quite frankly or follow it yourself but no those are the instances where yeah where, where will it come into play and what does it mean on, on friday night in particular first time out in a big spot like that it's going to be pass protection in the biggest area. Um, and look, yeah. I mean, that came up early in Travis's career. In yeah. fairness, I mean, it, it happens for everybody. You know, yep. CJ redshirted as a, tr- as a true freshman, you know, and had come along. So, bleh, look, heck, you go back to 18 with both of them. Tony Brooks James is still in the backfield. And there were times where he, he, he started games. And he would be in there in certain spots. And he was a smaller guy than CJ was, but he was in there in certain spots because they had to bring guys along from pass protection. Then obviously they proved it, et cetera. So it's going to take time, but far and away on offense. Uh, I know everybody wants to make it about quarterback. We're about to get to that. <laughs> but in terms of for, for me this week in particular, and really for the next two months, to me, the biggest question is not about whether Travis can handle the load and everything. That That's the short-term question that comes over the course of We'll, and we'll examine over the course of the next two months. The question as a whole, every single week, is going to be about who is the next guy in the running back rotation and what does the distribution look like in those situational moments of who's hammered away most on first and 10, P and 10 moments running the ball. 
know, this is still an offense that is balanced by way of production yardage-wise run to pass. But it's a top 25 running attack. And again, I don't think they're suddenly going to become the air raid. That's not what they're doing. They're still going to stay true to that. Well, it's okay. I, I think they will. But it's going to take a collective effort to replace the 17-plus touches a game that C.J. Verdell was giving you. That It just is. I mean, not, you have to replace him in the aggregate across an entire group. There's no, oh, well, Travis just does it, and you figure out the rest. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not that simple. It's not. Right. So it starts there. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. Much to the chagrin of uh, many in the, uh, at least in the Twitterverse, uh, I don't know about anywhere else, but um, at least there and uh, and in my email box a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Mario Cristobal is standing by Anthony Brown right now. Uh, they have said, really all season, uh, but he maintained it during the bye week, that there's things that he's done well, there's things that need to improve, and there's obviously some mistakes that have been made that everybody needs to improve on. But he gives them the best chance to win. So, your thoughts on that and the quarterback situation as a whole heading into the second half of the season, again, starting with Friday night against Cal, a team who, statistically speaking, has not gotten off to a good start whatsoever, not just in general, but particularly against the pass. Well, you know... I know the first what fifteen minutes of practice are open. Not anymore. Right? Not anymore. They've <laughs> not shut anymore. That down. That's yeah. Okay. That's. Uh... I I feel like some people actually believe that in practice, Ty Thompson is just lighting it up. He's just amazing. He's clearly the next Herbert or Mariota. But for some reason, Mario Cristobal just refuses to go to him. <laughs> and everything I've heard from people is that that's not even close to the truth. Like if the feeling is that they put him out there and started him that it's not going to necessarily go well. And the one thing about Brown for all his faults is he's not turning the ball over, right? So at least he's not killing your defense with silly turn. He has just just the one right. pick, right? And it was so, and it was a bad one. Right, but it was and just it, one. And, 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 it, and it should have been two. <laughs> okay, okay. And, so two even. But, but no, but for those, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate with you, Aaron. Right. I'm with you. But point is, is from the fans who are still simmering and smoldering over the Stanford game, it was there was the first pick, which was horrific. Right. I mean, Gabri Gabri wasn't even he never pantomimed that he was going forward. He dropped from the jump uh, that he nearly did it a second time to Gabri to start the second half, and that there were the multiple bad decisions on read options against Stanford. And obviously, it was a repeat from the Arizona game the week before. So when you say the errors were well, from a takeaway standpoint, there's only the one. And yeah, you can get into, yeah, they had the one fumble, but it was a sack fumble that wasn't his fault in the season opener. So that's garbage. I mean, don't go there. But from a decision-making standpoint, turnover or not, taking away points standpoint, there are arguments to be made playing not just devil's advocate, but just, yes, there, there were other issues that people have certainly identified. Well, of course. Yeah, he's yeah. He's, a, he's not a star quarterback and this program and the fans right now have been used to having star quarterbacks for the most part for the past you know at least 13 years and then going you know back to to joey even as well and clemens but um the the point is is that i 
based on what I'm hearing and based on what Mario's doing, I have no doubt that if they started Thompson, it wouldn't take long for people to go get him out of there. He's just not ready. If he were ready, and we've talked about this before, given his alleged talent level based on his recruiting ranking, then I think that he would be definitely someone that they could turn to right now. But I'm going to trust that Mario is watching the kid in practice and is like, yeah, if we put him out there, he's going to have issues. So the question is, can they get more out of Brown more so than should they turn to Ty? I don't think coaches are so dumb that they're not going to turn to the better quarterback if that's the situation that presents themselves. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen Oregon do that in the past. So um, my feeling is Ty's not ready, but I would like to see him mixed into the game plan, even if it's just, okay, you're going in for this series. And if you do well, we might give you another series later. If you don't, you know, maybe you're done for the day. Give him simple pass reads like they did when he played against Stony Brook. Let him run some zone a read and see if he can make a better decisions with the ball than Brown. Just mix him in in some capacity to just give him an opportunity to play as you're trying to assess him and, you know, have an alternative to Brown. If at some point you're like, okay, screw it. We just have to make a choice and just roll the dice and see what happens. And I think, look, this was kind of goes back to this was the issue with when you play competitive games or more competitive games than they needed to be against Stony Brook in particular against Arizona for longer than it needed to be. Uh, I know Fresno State stands up better with time, with time, but you were certainly hoping to pull away and, and pull away early and get, you know, more guys some opportunities in those games. So it only comes back to bite. It only comes back to bite you because it comes back to bite you. You know, yeah, theoretically, well, it would have been great to pull away and be up by 30 at halftime against any number of those teams. And then you can, put in backup quarterbacks and do those things. Uh, but, you know, how much do you really fret about it? It's only You're only fretting about it because you just lost to Stanford and because your starter is, is having some of the issues that we've identified. If your starter was in the top 10 nationally and you don't worry about it, well, then you don't even care that the, the backups didn't get in that much. You know, it's not, not that big a deal. So I'm with you in that, look, the, this notion, this this theory that is not just flawed it's just downright disingenuous and a uh, uh, absolute lie that any coach let alone Mario Cristobal is going to be so stubborn and downright dumb to <laughs> keep some prodigy you know in 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 a closet in, a, in, in the broom closet while uh you know somebody else is out there struggling or something is just preposterous I mean, what is this program showing that they're unwilling to play freshmen or something? I, I, I'm I'm sorry. Did Panay Sewell play here? Has Kayvon Thibodeau been playing here? Is Noah Sewell the starting middle linebacker here? I mean, I'm just trying to remember. You know, where, where are they getting this? Is did Veroma Kinley start immediately as a redshirt freshman? I, I'm just trying to remember if I'm watching the same team that everybody else is watching. <laughs> did C.J. Verdell take over in 2018 as a redshirt freshman? Did Travis Dye take you know help in the backfield as a true? I, I'm just trying to remember here. So where is this notion that this coach or this coaching staff is anti-freshman playing if they've proven capable? That's just a total farce and, and right. nonsense. Um, so again, very not, I wouldn't even say selective omission or, or remembrance, just disingenuous uh, is all it is. Just trying to support an argument uh, that doesn't have necessarily merit. Secondly, 
to this notion that again freshmen elsewhere are just going bananas you know it's it's just <laughs> everywhere else i'm just watching freshman all-american just pop out you know five stars walk in and just light it up everywhere else where where look in look in the statistics at quarterback nationally and see from an efficiency standpoint and from touchdown passes i'm not even getting into interception just touchdown passes where are the freshmen oh cj mm-hmm. stroud He's not a true freshman. He's a multi-year player. First-year starter. But C.J. Stroud isn't a true freshman. So, yeah, he's up at the top of the list. Good on him. But where are the other freshmen at Power 5 programs who are just putting up bonkers numbers that all these fans are supposedly identifying? There aren't any. There aren't. I'm sorry. Oh, well, Caleb Williams stepped in in Red River last week and had a huge game for Oklahoma and tipped my cap to him. He had a terrific performance. Hope he goes bananas every single week. If that's his job now, good on him. So you identified one player who had like one half of football and now that's supposed to happen everywhere and that's it? That's all it takes? That's the problem, though. That People saw that and th- th- one of the problems is lack of information, right? Back in the day... Like when we could watch practice uh, before Chip shut that down, I would go and I would watch Dennis Dixon. And I would just, just watch him because he was the backup to Clemens. And I walked away feeling he was going to be great, but that he was nowhere near ready to get in there and play his freshman year. There was no way. And the same thing later on with other kids you would go watch. Yeah, that guy's not close to ready. But now, like you can't go and, and basically scout Ty Williams and get a, a a read on where he is. So there's such a lack of information about where Ty is that it leads to the fantasy. Well, Ty will excuse me, Ty Thompson. Ty Thompson must be because he was rated one or two in the nation. He must be as good as Caleb Williams, who was the number one rated dual threat quarterback in the country. So if Caleb Williams is doing this, clearly Ty Thompson would do the same thing. And again, the Caleb, problem is Caleb Williams in one half of football and a game where the opponent wasn't maybe expecting him. And even if they were, he again, still went tippy, bonkers. Like tippy tippy regardless, regardless. He went bonkers in a shootout. But point is, is what happens when somebody actually has preparation time. And by the way, still playing in a league that doesn't play defense is allergic well, like, to defense. Like, like, like this conference plays defense. Pac-12 doesn't play defense either. Better, and I, I agree the, with what you're saying. I agree with better what you're saying. It's a, small, yeah. it's a small sample size. I agree yes. with you. But yes. but you can't tell me that if that kid we saw for Oklahoma was on Oregon's team right now, he wouldn't be starting. He would. They would put Brown. That kid would be in there, and they live with some of the mistakes because he's so dynamic. My point is, Ty Thompson is not doing in practice what we saw Caleb Williams do against Texas. If Ty Thompson were, then he would be starting. So people have to get off this fantasy. Basically, you're saying Mario is an idiot. Go back to, like, we, I brought up the Prue Cup Herbert thing before. Herbert was demonstrating week to week that he was special. And once they got to the point where they could trust him with the entire offense, Boom, they made the switch and the program never looked back. Ty Thompson is not doing those things in practice according to everyone I've spoken to. So there's no comparison. So fans need to get off of that. Anyway, go ahead. And, but another key aspect of not just the comparison of bringing up to Caleb Williams, because again, from like one half of football, again, to stress, one half of football. And one of the great comebacks that you'll ever see, not just in that rivalry, but in general, when you're down three touchdowns. Let's not begin to compare the receiving course, shall we? Can we not? Can we just not even... Because, seriously, it's not, uh oh, oh, the quarterback did what he did. (laughs) Who was he throwing to? Okay, and which one of, where where are they right now here? 
I'm not saying that some of the freshmen on Oregon's roster can't necessarily take off. And I think the second half of the season, I think a couple of these freshman receivers might start to be a lot more productive and get a lot more opportunities, a lot more targets. But the reason why two the super the two super seniors at receiver aren't just getting the most targets, but are having the most production, aren't just because they are playing better. They're playing better at receiving, and for a large swath of things, they've been the two best blockers at receiver. Yes, Chris Hudson has had his moments as well. And against Stanford, I thought the group as a whole actually did much better in that regard. It was improved collectively. But in the prior four games, Johnny Johnson III and Jalen Red, and occasionally Chris Hudson as well, were about the only guys who were truly blocking all that well at the receiver position. So, mm-hmm. you know, with that said, and by, and again, another instance of don't tell me that they do that a whole lot in the Big 12. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> look, uh, if it got to the point, if it got truly to a day of reckoning decision, I don't think that they would shy away from making a change no. if they felt that that was actually something that put them in the best position. But Absolutely. when you get to what is still the identity of this team, the identity of this team starts at the running game offensively. It does. They're top 25 rushing attack. They're like in the 80s passing-wise. That's just the way it is. Forget even distribution of yards, but ranking-wise, you know where things are. All right, starts there. And secondly, yeah, that they need to get a little bit more developed at the receiver group as a whole, uh, a little bit further along there. And they, yeah, the passing game obviously has had some issues, particularly the absence of a lot of vertical threats. Some of that has been on the touch of Anthony Brown, where the passes haven't necessarily been there. You can say, well, it's 50-50 balls. Well, the problem is, is that, yeah, they're 50-50 and they go either way. After five games, I'm not so sure that it's been 50-50 where they've gotten their share of 50%. I think they've been below 50. And, you know, for, for all those for fans want to say, like, they didn't complete any. Obviously, they've completed some. But I don't even think they've gotten 50-50. I could rattle off a lot more of the ones that they've missed than the ones that they've connected on where the ball has actually traveled 20 yards in the air, not the 66-yarder that Pittman breaks a tackle and then, you know, it's, it's in the open field. The truly deep throws hadn't been there. Now, having said that, one, it wasn't like Anthony Brown showed incredible touch when he was at Boston College in that regard, so you can't act surprised and outraged, right. number one. Two, <laughs> any quarterback, freshman or super senior, with a new team, guys, this doesn't happen in the NFL. A new guy, a new quarterback walks in. The, the only time it walked in, you know where it happened in the NFL? Tom Brady walks in and just doesn't matter well, that he hadn't, hadn't worked with anybody he, except for Gronkowski before. But he and was then, a game oh, okay, manager. He just connects. They well, kept things really simple for Tom. No, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Tom in Tampa. I'm talking about Tom in Tampa. Oh, oh sorry. Who sorry. walks in and just, oh, doesn't matter that he never worked with anybody before. He's that guy. Yeah. Okay. But... When when rookie quarterbacks step in, or when a new you know free agent steps in, who hasn't worked with guys, and they're professionals who spend wildly more amounts of time in practice with each other than college players do, they still have to develop chemistry. Well, that's part of it too. It's part of it too. So they could spend all the time they want in practice and in the summer and all these things. Yeah, but until you're actually facing an opponent who doesn't want you to do those things, you know it's not quite the same. So that's part of it, and that's a big question heading into the second half of the season of how does Anthony Brown improve? Are they able to you know, better stretch the field vertically? I don't, I'm 
don't shy away from the fact that those are major questions for this passing game. They are. Yep. They are very real. But the I, this notion, again, really going to the original premise of they have to make a change at quarterback or whatever. I, again, I hear the fan base. I understand people's frustration. But again, they're in the top 100 quarterbacks in the country right now in efficiency. Ten of them are listed as freshmen. Of that ten, I think like one or two might be true freshmen. And I think other than C.J. Stroud, who again is not a true freshman at Ohio State and has the best wide receiver core in the country with him. And, and a running back who's in the Heisman race. Also, yeah. oh yeah, by the way, and one of the best offensive lines in the country. But other than that, you know, uh, <laughs> but put him aside, almost none of the others play at a Power 5 program. So this idea that there are just these freshman quarterbacks who just, oh, they've got a four or five star tag attached to their recruitment, and then they just walk in and light up the world the minute they show up, is wrong. Or, it's just Oregon not fans, true. Oregon fans should know better than anyone that the four-star quarterback doesn't mean jack. Because the two best quarterbacks they've had the last 15 years were three-star kids. This program has seen so many four-star kids come and go. My point, I'm agreeing with you. My point is yeah. don't assume the stars mean that guy's going to be great. Oregon fans can't claim that because they haven't had a great four-star quarterback since Kellen Clemens or Dennis Dixon for one year. And Dennis struggled as a true freshman. Clemens redshirted, I think. So anyway, and Joey wasn't great as a, as a true freshman. So the great quarterback, and Mariota redshirted. So they've only had one kid really as a true freshman step in and look amazing, and that was Herbert, and that's in 20 years. So that supports your point. Last thing, though, it could click with Ty. Two weeks from now, they right. could be like, okay, Ty's he's, he's cleaned up these areas. We got enough that we can use him for. Let's get him out there. That could happen. But Agreed. it's just not right now it's happening. Agreed. It's just, again, <laughs> yeah. I, I know it's about – Freshman elsewhere, freshman elsewhere. Whether it be Caleb Williams this year, if you want to go back to Tua or any of the other instances. Yeah, again. Or, or Johnny Manziel. Again, everything. This all started because of Manziel. Tua. Again, who, who wasn't even. Tua came in and threw a who great these touchdown pe- pass who against blown coverage. Who are these people, who are these people, <laughs> surra- who are these people surrounded by? Who are the receivers yeah. they were surrounded by? The first round offensive linemen they were surrounded by. Yeah, again, you're counting on one hand the extreme instances. You don't remember all the instances of the guys who struggled. Right. So again, exactly. don't talk to me only about the extremes. If you want to get the total picture, we can bring out the we we can go over all the freshmen every year who just completely fizzle and have hard times. So it's and that's not this isn't an indictment about recruiting rankings. This isn't a knock on Ty Thompson or anything else. This is simply saying this concept <laughs> that that they are just ignoring Ty's extraordinary abilities and putting the team at a detriment is just not true. It's just not true. Sometimes, it, you know, I know everybody wants it, not just microwave, nuclear, instantly. It's not how it works. It never I will say this, though. I will, I will say this, though, and I still stand by this. From my, I brought this up last time. The fact that he's been there nine months and is a five-star kit talent, the fact that he hasn't to this point risen to the level where it's like, okay, he's at least going to be better than Brown is a little disconcerting. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with that in terms of, I'm not saying he's not going to develop and become great. I'm just saying that, man, Brown is really struggling. And this guy was a number one or two rated quarterback in the country. How is he not at least going to be better than Brown? That tells me that he's really struggling with some things. And so for me, that makes me wonder about the future a little bit. Doesn't, I'm not discounting him. I'm just saying it's a little disheartening. As far as I'm concerned, but anyway, we should probably move on. We're, we're, we're moving on, we're killing, yeah, moving on we're to the defense. We move on to the defense because that's obviously you know we've we've, we've hammered the one half of the ball for sure. <laughs> in general, 
the big picture is the, the really this is a lot of good news for the defense. Obviously, we know that Bennett Williams being lost for the season is not. We've, we've talked about that before. But they're getting a lot of guys back. They're getting a lot of guys back this week. Start. They expect to have Braden Swinson and Adrian Jackson Jr. in particular. Uh, Jake Shipley, who was a little banged up, and Mace Funa, who's been back for a couple of weeks, but maybe not at a total 100%. Um, obviously, Kayvon Thibodeau will be out for the first half, but we'll be back thereafter. As long as nothing happens in the first half, per, uh, you know, injury-wise, when Thibodeau gets back on the field in the second half, Friday night, the I'm going to say the front seven, because how we categorize edge versus defensive line, you know, whatever, the, the collective front seven we'll have. Thibodeau, Swinson, Jackson, Mai, Shipley, Funa, Dorlis, Amavai, Ware Hudson, Christian Williams, Noah Sewell, Keith Brown, for the first time available since the first quarter against Fresno State. Now, obviously, not having Mathis and not having Flo and LaDuke at the weak side backer position, you know, the depth there hurts, but... For as many injuries as this group has unfortunately suffered, many of them shorter term, uh, other than the weak side backer spot, for as many issues as this group has faced by way of personnel availability, for the front seven ultimately to enter the second half of the season, whereby, yes, the one position has been snake bit for sure, but otherwise that that group could be as stocked as that is, that was the hope and the plan on a a down-to-down basis for the last five games, and they had it for one quarter. Now they're in, you know, in shape to have that starting with the second half Friday night. That's enormous, and I think it starts with Swinson. More than not putting it, not putting an undue burden on anybody, but you saw what he was able to do in the first two games. You saw when he was, <coughs> excuse me, teamed up with Thibodeau, in particular, what he was able to do. I think having his presence there without KT is beneficial in a big way, and with KT. I think this pass rush and and the ability to rush the passer and generate disruptive plays in the backfield could take a massive, massive step up. Because sooner or later, you can't just double-team KT all day. Because then you've got... And yes, obviously, they had Funa before. They had the other interior guys before. But when you start getting into, again, those designated pass rush downs, they didn't have a lot of other bodies necessarily to turn to. And by the way, I didn't even mention a DJ Johnson or a Brandon Buckner in particular like we're talking about with designated pass rush, who have come into those pass rush roles in those pass rush downs. You saw it even against Ohio State on the final play. They're further down on the depth chart. One's a freshman, one's a guy playing two ways. Yeah, but they've had to turn to them in some pretty big spots, including against Stanford. Well, I'm not saying they're going to be out of the rotation. I'm saying they're going to be where they were naturally in the rotation with these other guys back, and that's the good news for this defense. I think they're about to take off from a pass rush standpoint, particularly in the second half. That's that's the good news for the Ducks on defense. They're they're going to ton of weapons back. What are you expecting? What are you expecting with all those weapons back? Yeah, I mean you you've been high on the front seven the entire year, and and believed they were going to be better than last year, and that they had some upgrades at some positions. When healthy, they lost. Yeah, they, yeah, well, yeah. When healthy, when they lost, you know, some guys um, who left the program. But we just haven't seen it all come together because of the injuries and the situation. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen flashes of it. I, I, I have no reason to, to doubt your belief that they're going to be special as a unit. And th- quite frankly, the Ducks need that because you're, you I clearly can't count on 35, 40 points a game from the offense, especially with Verdell gone and your struggles at quarterback. 
So they're going to have to win games where they're holding teams, I think, to under 24 on a routine basis because right now I find it very difficult to name many games the rest of the season where I know they're going to score. Excuse me. I know they're going to score 30. I don't see many. So, yeah, if the defense can get back to close to full health and be close to elite and dominate games and, you know, one, hold teams to fewer points, but two, set up the offense with great field position by creating turnovers or pinning people deep, then they punt, catch the punt, the 40, 50, run it back 10 yards, what have you. Then, yeah, that's going to be a huge um, upgrade for this entire team and help everything flow because right now the defense, to me, has to carry the load moving forward. Yeah, if you look at Pac-12 scoring defense, and obviously Oregon's got one of them uh, in the in the top half of the league right now. But if you look at the rankings of scoring defense in the league, if you take Oregon out because obviously they can't play themselves, uh, of the top half, basically, heck, really, top eight of the seven other teams in the top eight in the league, and Cal is not one of them, they are set to play pretty much everybody still ahead except for Arizona State, atop the heap at the moment. Otherwise, still have games with Washington, Utah, Oregon State, Colorado, Wazoo, you know, UCLA, that's still all on the docket. You know, yeah, they already played Arizona. They already played Stanford. You know, Cal's coming up, and again, Cal's scoring defense doesn't stack up all that well. And the defense is the one thing that's actually arguably their strength, and that really sets us up to Cal specifically for Friday night, where... Oregon is favored by two touchdowns. Cal won last year, 21-17 in Berkeley. Uh, I was one of the few people there to see it uh, in, in the stadium uh, or otherwise uh, in, in person. You and, witnessed it. Yes, um, and that was that was as uh, uh, messy a performance in a lot of ways uh, from obviously the turnovers on offense, the failed fourth down conversion late, the early drive by Cal that was extended by two penalties, one of them on Thibodeau. Uh, and the other one, I think, on Bennett Williams, if memory serves me correctly, um, that that extended that crazy long drive that Cal had. Uh, so that was a ugly game, not just because of outcome, but ugly game by the way it was played by Oregon. I thought, you know, they, they just didn't play a clean game uh, on either side of the ball in any way, shape, or form. So Cal pulls an upset last year, and obviously has got to be, you know that's the, the one win of last season. All right, a lot of circumstances are different. Tim DeRuiter is on this sideline. And Keith Hayward is on that sideline. And Tyler Shuck's not the quarterback anymore. And, you know, all sorts of, you know, pl- plenty of other instances. For that matter, coin dang, you know, for everybody, for all the Oregon fans who only believe that their players and, and team is the only one snake bit by injuries, you know, the best best player, I would argue, not just best defensive player, best player on Cal's team has been out for several weeks and is expected to continue to be out for the foreseeable future. Not listed on the depth chart. And Justin Wilcox isn't one to, to play, you know, hide the football on that kind of stuff either. So they're not going to be with their best player on the defensive side either uh, at the inside backer position. And he's obviously one of the most disruptive players, not just on that team, but really in the league. So they're missing some pieces too. Having said all that, how do you see this one, Aaron? Because like I say, in a lot of ways, it's hard to really find an area that Cal has a discernible advantage, to be totally honest and, and fair. You know they're well coached. But they've been well coached the whole time this season amid a really rough start that they are, I'm not even sure disappointed, captures the extent of the situation at 1-4 and four for Cal. Cal 
not just aspires to because any competitor wants to win. I think Cal very much envisioned in the offseason, if you ask them where they'd be at the bye week, I think they'd say that they want they, they thought they would be at four and one. Instead they're at one and four. Right. Well, clearly they they haven't fixed their offense yet. Their offense is still a mess. Defensively, you mentioned they have they aren't statistically as good as they were last year. Uh, but most of that damage based on the box scores I've looked at has come through the air. The run defense is still pretty good. They're giving them 3.4 yards per carry. Um, and so for me, from a matchup standpoint, I sort of look at it like, okay, well, these guys can be had through the air, maybe not so much on the ground. And whereas Oregon's true weakness on offense is in the passing game. And so if, if I'm Cal, I'm doing everything I can to disrupt that run game as much as possible and dare Brown to beat me and dare Brown to beat me downfield because I'm putting DBs and receivers faces and I'm just going to try and make life as difficult as I can for Brown. So I, I think Cal has a puncher's chance to keep this game interesting with their defense unless Brown can step up and make some plays. But offensively, they're just not going to be able to generate enough offense, especially against you know, a front seven that's going to be whole again, at least when Kayvon comes back in the second half. So I, I just can't see how Oregon loses this game. I think that the, uh, I agree with you across the board. And I think that additionally, that Cal's, well, we can't have that. Cal's, well, uh, Cal's, Cal's run defense also, um, it's better statistically than it's pass defense. I think in this game, you're actually going to see Oregon be able to play to its strengths a little bit. Uh, in, in both instances, I think that you're going to see a higher. I, I think the Ducks run for more yards than Cal is presently allowing on average. Not just because, well, that's just Oregon. No, take a look at Cal's opponents and who they've had some success with against the ground. And putting Sacramento State aside, you know, let, let's just throw that number right, right out the window. Okay, uh, Nevada, Washington, and Washington State are all way down there like ranked 100 right. or worse in rushing offense so success against you know now it'd be a real problem if you didn't have success against terrible teams running the ball but those are not good running teams so that contextualizes a bit of i think that may be a little bit artificially inflated statistically not saying they're not good at stopping the run at all they have some players don't get me wrong right. they're really fundamentally sound in the front seven in particular they tackle an open space they don't miss a lot but I think they're a little bit inflated compared to – they haven't played a top 25 rushing offense like Oregon has with or without right. C.J. Verdell. So – or an offensive line as good as Oregon's, quite frankly. So that's first. Second, yeah, I think the past defense numbers, with that said, um, that in some instances they've probably gotten tagged a little bit at times where they may be a little bit better than their numbers would indicate. But unless Oregon is going to just – look to have Anthony Brown throw a whole lot of vertical passes, which I don't think anyone in our uh, listening area or uh, uh, readership area will uh, mind in the least, uh, unless that is part of the game plan in a big way to stretch the field vertically half a dozen times, which, again, I don't think anybody's going to be crying about. If that occurs, hey, you know, then they may very well put up all kinds of passing yards in a big way and, and tag Cal for a huge number. Otherwise, I think this will just kind of be another installment of this series. Which, and, and if you go back, by the way, historically in this rivalry, in this matchup, in this division series, I think Oregon's only had six 300-yard passing games 
from five quarterbacks against Cal historically. So it's not like this is a new thing in terms of passing against Cal, uh, you know, in this series in particular. So I think Oregon wins. I think Oregon covers. I just don't know if it's going to be a, you know, let's put it this way. If you're expecting a 42-14, to 14, if you get it, hey, you know, we'll, we'll come on next week and tell you, hey, boy, what a showing. Um, I, I think this could be one of those sort of not fully satisfying 28-14, 28-10 kind of games just because of the way that Cal likes to play too. You know, I, I think it may not necessarily be the most wildly entertaining game from that standpoint. But that may not be a – they may be really efficient. They may not turn the ball over. They may score on the majority of their possessions. And like I say, they still might win 28-10 to 10 or 28-14. It just – I think that's going to have a lot to do with how Cal wants to play this game on both sides. So I do think they are the much better team, though. I don't find a lot of areas that Cal really has a, a discernible advantage, like I say. I, and I think Cameron Good's a terrific player. Terrific player. But I don't think this Cal offense has figured itself out at all. Um, I don't. I just don't see a lot of weapons that they're going to be able to beat Oregon regularly uh, from from Cal's offense to to the Oregon defense, particularly. Yeah, but the front seven is is going to be as healthy as it is. So the only thing you could really say is that Cal's probably better than Arizona, and that was a game going into the fourth. But ultimately, it ended forty one nineteen, which is you know, yeah, <laughs> it was an ugly win, but yeah, they, they but won you, it convincingly. Yeah, but you, but you have to play sixty minutes and not forty five, and uh, exactly. So oops. Cal might keep it interesting yeah. for a while, you know, who knows? But ultimately, and they do have a senior quarterback, and Garbers has been, yeah, and Garbers yeah. has been here and done that, and they right. do have some older players on the team. Uh, I mean, right. look, Luke Beckett on defense too, off the edge. He's been around for quite some. A really long time. I think he's a sixth or seventh year senior. I mean, he he's been at Cal, left Cal, and come back to Cal. Uh, he's he's one of the more traveled players in the country in that regard. Um, no, they've they've got some players. They do, but I don't think they have nearly enough to hang in this game. I don't. So so we we agree Oregon takes care of this one. I'm sure we'd agree that Oregon takes care of Colorado. I I, I think though UCLA, UW, Washington State, Utah, Oregon State for me. You know, I'm not saying they're going to lose all five of those or even four of those, but I think they're all losable. Based on what we've seen so far, unless the defensive front seven, as you believe they're going to be, becomes truly just obnoxiously good, those to me are all precarious games looking ahead. But we don't have to dive too much into that. No, we'll, we'll certainly we've got all the time in the world to delve into those in the future <laughs> um, and do that on a weekly basis. But we will see how it goes down Friday night. Again, at 7.30 at Otson. Uh, it should be, at the very least, a, uh, a fun one to get back to in a Friday night environment uh, back on a college campus uh, and having the, the Friday night uh, environment compo- compared to a Saturday, uh, which is you know good enough as it is, but the Friday nights always get pretty wild too. So it should be fun. Again, we'll, uh, for those of you who will make it, I'm sure we'll see you there. Otherwise, we will see you on the next edition of the Docs Confidential Podcast, which, again, if you don't already... Uh, subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcast like subscribe the whole thing give us a review five star review that way it helps others to find it as well so for now that's it for us uh, i'm james Creppy and he's aaron fentress here for the oregonian and oregon live and we'll see you next week for another edition of the ducks confidential podcast <laughs>